Mona, tell me, why were you interested in this position? Well, not to sound too crass, I'm kind of interested in money. Which feels like a strange thing to admit, right? But Mona, I am. you've come to the right place. <laughs> you're sitting in the right chair, and you're going to have so much fun hosting this show. Welcome to Fortune Favors the Bold, a branded podcast from MasterCard and Gimlet Creative. I'm Mona Chalabi, and I am so glad to be here, sitting in this studio eating a jumbo croissant across from Fortune Favors the Bold season one host, Ashley Seaford, who is off writing a book this year. Hello, Mona. So, tell me, any advice, Ashley, as I take yes. the reins? Yes, I've got mad advice for you. No, I don't really. Just keep an open mind. Because even though people are hesitant to talk about money, mm-hmm. what you're going to find out really quickly is that people want to talk about money. Yeah. And they want to talk about their feelings about it. They want to talk about their experience with it. And they want to talk about the potential for it. And those are fascinating conversations. Mm. So much of it seems hidden, and so much of it seems like a secret language, but it's not a secret language. You just have to ask the questions. Last season on Fortune Favors the Bold, Ashley took a deep dive into how we take risks, take control, and redefine our relationship with money. But this season, I'm the one in front of the mic, and we're taking a hard look at the rules around money, the official ones and the unofficial ones too. We'll meet some of the people who are kicking those old rules to the curb, I'm working to change all our lives for the better. And this is the perfect job for me, because I'm a data journalist. So I spend my days translating numbers, whether it's data on racial inequality, the pay gap, or male boarding patterns, into words and images. My hope is to leave people better informed about how to make decisions in their own lives, because you've got to know the rules before you can break them. And you've got to break the rules in order to make a more inclusive world. For this first episode, we're taking a look at upward mobility. That's the movement from one socioeconomic level to a higher one. There's that good old American phrase, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's part of the American dream, isn't it? But have you actually tried to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Mm, Not so easy. This phrase is a leftover from the old rules around mobility that as long as an individual works hard enough, they'll succeed. But people today who are working on increasing upward mobility say that's just not true. It actually takes a village to achieve upward mobility, and no amount of tugging on those bootstraps is going to help. Plus, the very definition of upward mobility is changing. It's not just about wealth anymore, but about social capital too, like community. In this episode, we'll log on to a social media platform that's more than just a place to scroll through life updates and baby pictures. It actually facilitates upward mobility by connecting people to others in similar financial situations. And we'll hear some more from Ashley. She'll be the one in the hot seat this time as I ask her about her personal experience of upward mobility. My first year living in New York, I out-earned my mother by about $5,000 a year. And now I out-earn her by three times. But first, we're going to need to define our terms, what upward mobility is and how it works. For this, we'll go to Ambar Narayan. He's a lead economist in the poverty and equity global practice at the World Bank. 
He's spent a lot of time thinking about upward mobility and how we make it happen. So this concept of mobility is about fairness, which essentially means that regardless of where your parents are on the economic and social ladder, uh, you want to have a fair chance to move up. When Ambar talks about mobility, he means intergenerational mobility, or the likelihood that a child ends up in a better financial situation than the one she was born into. And Ambar published a study with his colleagues about how it differs across countries. The study takes what he calls a life cycle approach. We start talking about policies that act at a very early stage of the life cycle, which starts with maternal health and then, of course, education policies and finally labour market policies. Countries with high levels of mobility tend to do pretty well in those categories. And while what exactly works will vary from place to place, there are some things that are uncontroversial. Unequivocally, what we can say is that early childhood policies work. Things like easily accessible, subsidised childcare and education. And this makes sense, because when childcare is hard to come by, it's often the women of the family who will provide it, which limits their ability to go to school and work, and thus their upward mobility. But easy access to childcare removes that barrier. Which is good for not just the economic mobility of women, but it's also good for the economic mobility of families as a whole. Ambar says that in the US, one great example of a programme providing support for low-income children and their families is Head Start. Which is among the largest preschool programmes in the world. Head Start has been shown to have a pretty uh, strong impact on the long-term outcomes, including earnings when children grow up and so on. Outside of the US, a study in Jamaica gave children from poor families a randomised mix of two kinds of help. One group received food aid while the other got counselling about education, nutrition and general health. And the results were clear. These children had much higher, 25% higher income as adults when they grew up. So this kind of support seems to make a difference when it comes to upward mobility, and that's across countries. And note here, no one is pulling themselves up by their bootstraps alone. Ambar says that his research also shows that there are other old rules that need to be thrown out. One of them might feel familiar if, in high school, some of your friends took advanced English while some others took a general English class. That's academic tracking, where students are separated based on their supposed academic ability, often from a very early age. Now, there's a lot of evidence that tracking actually decreases upward mobility. Because as we know, poor children or children from less educated families start with a disadvantage early in life. So if they're put in silos into different tracks from a very early age, it's very difficult for them to actually improve their performance over time. So in order to create a more level playing field, an integrated education is key. And Umbar's World Bank report shows that improving access to secondary education can have a major impact on upward mobility. That's true in developing and lower middle income countries, but it's also true right here in the US. See, in the US, families do have access to free secondary education, but post-secondary is a completely different story. Not only can the cost be prohibitive, but just figuring out how to navigate the college world can be a major challenge if your family hasn't been there before. My family had no idea what it was like for a first-year college student to be at college, Mm -hmm. or what I might need or require. My mom didn't even know how to fill out my FAFSA. My mom handed me her tax information and essentially said, well, 
there's the information. And Wait, can I, I stop you for a second? Yeah, absolutely. As a foreigner, a FAFSA oh, <laughs> sounds FAFSA. like a really bad rash or something. <laughs> it is not a rash. The FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. So Ashley grew up with her mother in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about two hours northeast of Indianapolis. She's the oldest of four children, and no one in her family had gone to college before. They didn't have a lot of money, and in order to change that, she knew that college would be her best bet. And it's not necessarily that my family did not want to help me. As a matter of fact, it's not that at all. I think my family, given the opportunity, would have jumped at the chance to help me. But there were two things working against them, access and knowledge. Right, because that FAFSA form is essential in gaining some of that class mobility. But if you don't know that it exists, how can you kind of take that step up? Oh, absolutely. I filled it out wrong twice. Yeah. And had to eventually go to the public library. And the librarians there helped me do it the right way. It wasn't just the librarians. Some particularly encouraging friends helped Ashley out too. And while she had never applied to school before, she had a lot of practice relying on her community for support. My mom has four sisters. Mm. They all live in the same neighborhood. They don't all live in the same neighborhood because they love that neighborhood. What they understand is that when you live among your family, you can, A, save money on childcare, Mm -hmm. because they definitely did that, Mm -hmm. and B, this is the important one, you always have somebody close who can help you out at a moment's notice. Ashley may not have been rich in economic capital, but she had accumulated a substantial amount of social capital. With the support from her family and know-how from her wider community, Ashley applied to college and was accepted to one about an hour away from home. It was really exciting, but also the reality of what it means to be first in her family to go to college started to sink in. From the first day of orientation, she felt different from many of the other students. It was interesting watching all of the women, the young women, show up um, for college in that first week and their moms and aunts and grandparents showing up and helping them decorate their rooms Mm. and taking them on last-minute runs to get things they needed or forgot. And none of that happened for me. This was uncharted territory for Ashley. And as she got used to school and made new friends, it could sometimes feel difficult to negotiate her relationships with her community at home. You know, somebody said to me recently, and I wish they had said this to me before, that class transition feels like losing your tribe. And that is absolutely true. Oh, that's so sad. But it's true, you know. Or is it sad? Maybe it's not sad. I mean, my mother and I do a lot better. But at that point in our lives, that was really hard for both of us. And it quickly became one of those very cliche, you know, parents super proud of the kid who went to college, but then the kid who went to college comes back and starts talking about stuff they learned at college, and parent feels weird about that. Over the next few years, this weirdness faded on both sides. But for a while, it was tricky for Ashley and her mum to negotiate their new differences. 
Even now, Ashley says that being in a different economic class than her family is never far from her mind, especially when she thinks about the future. How do you feel about kids? Oh, <laughs> sound like my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> Your kids presumably would be raised in a different economic class to the one that you was raised in. Right. I do think that I could do it and that I could raise kids who had access to more than me mm-hmm. and not try to love them through money <laughs> um, and also not quietly resent them <laughs> for having so much more and access to so much more than I did. Ashley says that even when she thinks about something simple, like signing up her theoretical future kids for music lessons, that can feel kind of fraught. My choir teacher in middle school wanted to give me piano classes, and she told me she would do it for me if I could come in early in the mornings and for $5 a session. And my mom couldn't make that work, you know? So I think about what if I have a kid and I'm like, do you want to take piano? And they're like, yeah, and it's $50 an hour, $100 an hour, and I take them to these sessions, and then they're like, I hate it, and I don't want to do it anymore. Like, how would I react to that, Mm. knowing that, like, playing the piano was one of my dreams, and I just didn't have access to it? It's like, would I react well to that? Because in my mind, I would be like, oh, well, if that's not your interest, Mm. then we'll find something else, and we'll find your interest. The other part of me knows who I am. And knows that I might get down in their little face and be like, you're taking piano. The experience of upward mobility is often full of mixed emotions. And not just for the person experiencing transition, but for the people around them as well. Ashley now lends her knowledge to her community back home in Indianapolis. How does that feel? Wild. Yeah. Wild and unnatural. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Yeah. Wild and unnatural. That's how it feels to essentially be in a place where um, because you can plan long term for the first time in your life, Mm -hmm. you are also now teaching other people not just not just how to plan long term, but also how to rely on another person to help them out. Mm. Because self-sufficiency is so ingrained in us, right? It's so ingrained. It's so ingrained. And the asking for help is imbued with so much shame, even when it's necessary. When we come back, we'll hear from someone whose mission is to make self-sufficiency less ingrained in our culture and give many more people access to opportunities while he's at it. I can't imagine one individual who has been able to find success all on their own. That's after this. You're listening to Fortune Favors the Bold, brought to you by MasterCard. Today, we're learning about how your outcomes are based largely on where you happen to be and who you're around. People are poor not because of who they are or what their ambition or what their skills. People are poor because of where they live. This is Parag Mehta. He's the executive director for the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. And he says this idea of who we're around is really a matter of networks. There are different kinds of networks, physical, digital, social, 
but access to networks can help unlock a person's potential. We understand that the best way to move people out of poverty and on a path to prosperity is to help them be more connected to these networks. This is the idea of democratizing productivity or upward mobility. And the Center for Inclusive Growth's mission is to promote upward mobility around the world. Because as we're learning in this episode, sometimes all you really need is a hand up. Like imagine two kids. One's doing her homework by candlelight and the other one is doing her homework on her laptop. Now, both kids may be ambitious. Both kids may have incredible talents and skills and great potential for their lives. But the kid working by candlelight will never ever catch up to the kid working by the laptop. So part of our job as MasterCard and as the center, both as a business strategy, because we want the kid by candlelight to be digitally connected, but also from a philanthropic perspective, which is we want to help people achieve their full potential. And the only way we do that is if everybody has a level playing field to start with. To find out more about how MasterCard's Center for Inclusive Growth works to level the playing field, head to mastercardcenter.org. That's mastercardcenter.org. Before the break, we heard about how hard upward mobility can be and how many of us are taught that turning to others for help is a weakness. Now, we're going to hear about someone who is working to change that. Jesus Reina's mission is to make self-sufficiency less ingrained in our culture and give many more people access to opportunities while he's at it. I can't imagine one individual who has been able to find success all on their own. Jesus is the CEO of the Family Independence Initiative, or FII, it's a national nonprofit that works to help low-income families achieve upward mobility. And in order to do that, he says we have to change the way we've been thinking about lower-income communities. We have built a narrative around who the working poor are, which is that somehow they're lazy, they're mutchers, they're stuck, and that's why they're in that economic position. Jesus says that this narrative couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, 75% of Americans living below the poverty line will move above it within just four years. So that flies in the face of that narrative that has been built about who these folks are and what they're doing. They're actually working. They're hustling in all sorts of ways to be able to create momentum for themselves and are achieving it. But the thing is, the story doesn't end there. Because within five years, the same study shows that 50% of these families fall right back under the poverty line. Then their car breaks down, they hit some sort of emergency, maybe their child gets sick, and they fall right back into that that position of, of living in poverty again. This isn't because they stopped working hard. It's because here in the US, they're often expected to climb the ladder pretty much on their own. And then, one unexpected expense, and it's right back to the first rung. Jesus says that another part of this same outdated narrative about upward mobility is the belief that all people with low incomes have the exact same set of circumstances which can be overcome in the exact same way. FII believes that these blanket solutions rarely help everyone. So they aim to dismantle these old narratives and start again. The first rule that we're breaking is uh, there's no cookie cutter solutions. Like it has to start. Um, with putting this control back into people's hands for them to be able to to find their way. And so, FII does something kind of radical. The answers are there. We're just not paying attention to them. 
They just ask people what they need. It's like, stop guessing. Start asking. FII partners directly with low-income communities through their online platform, UpTogether. It's a social media platform where users will share their financial experience and knowledge with other people who are also trying to achieve economic and social mobility. Here's how it works. When you log on to UpTogether, you immediately see how close you are to your financial goals that you've put into the system. This part's like a fitness tracker, but for finances. But UpTogether is also a social platform. It connects you with other people who want to achieve similar goals or who have already done it, so that you can exchange advice and help each other out. What you're doing when you use this platform is building social capital while also building economic capital. Every time you help out a peer or post about a success story, you build up what they call an initiative score. Once you hit a particular threshold, you'll get access to grants, match savings, scholarships, and even loans from FII directly. And in the process, FII is able to fill that crucial gap in traditional mobility efforts, learning directly what families living in poverty need most. And those needs are different for almost everyone. You know, you just never know when it comes to to households, how they find that success for themselves. Jesus has seen a lot of up-together success stories. Take Cynthia, for example. She shared on the platform that her kids' grades had improved considerably. We were really curious as to what was happening. And looked at the data and sort of said, well, there's like no new after-school program. Like, ah, this is weird. So Jesus and his team asked her about it. And uh, when we did, she was just like, that was because I got a car. We were like, wait, what do you mean? She was like, yeah, um, I was able to access this really low interest loan and purchase a car. And because one of my children has chronic asthma, when he would get sick, everybody had to stay home because I couldn't bring him on the bus. But now I have a car. We can all pile in and drop everybody off and I come home with him. This in turn allowed for better attendance. Thus, all those A's. Like, you just don't know, right? Like, uh, all she needed was access to very cheap capital to be able to purchase a car that didn't translate it into other uh, positive places in her life and had this, you know, uh, effect in her children's education. Instead of wealth being transferred from generation to generation, as has traditionally been the case in high-income families, people on Up Together can achieve success by sharing information with each other. For us, this is about community, whether it's the immigrant experience in the Northeast, townships that formed after slavery, uh, or the Chinatown experience. People are coming in into these situations of uh, flux, right, like and not having certainty. Um, there's a group of folks that will rally around them, share best practices or paths to be able to seek success. But then also, as people do find that success, they look back and invest in others. Communities of immigrants and people with low incomes have been taking care of each other for ages. But the old rules, those mythical bootstraps, have ignored that. And instead, they insist on this idea that it's necessary or somehow more virtuous to pull yourself up all on your own. And this has left people who hope to achieve upward mobility, people like Ashley, sometimes feeling like they have to do the impossible. But today's innovators, like FII, 
are recognising the wisdom of these communities, listening to it and amplifying it. And that's the key to upward mobility. It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but helping your neighbour to put on their boots and then giving them a hand up. Next time on Fortune Favours the Bold, we're going to learn how people are educating their kids about financial decisions, or aren't, and how that's changing in the digital age. Fortune Favours the Bold is a branded podcast from Mastercard and Gimlet Creative. This episode was produced by Jorge Estrada and Matt Schiltz. Production assistance from Max Gibson. Sarah Geis is our editor. Rob Hahn mixed this episode. Technical direction was from Zach Schmidt. Our theme song was composed by Bobby Lord. Let us know what you thought of the show. Find us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and tell your friends about the show too. I'm Mona Chalabi. Fortune Favours the Bold will be back next week. <laughs>